that song that we sang a few moments ago. It's new to us. You've picked up on it well. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you noticed, those of you that have been here for our study in 1 Peter, I hope you notice that that text comes right out of 1 Peter 1 and 2. And it was intended to. Uh, and it's a testimony of the things that we have learned. We've been studying 1 Peter as a pastoral letter, a letter that is meant to give practical instruction to Christians who are living in a sinful world, to Christians who are feeling less and less at home in this world. And so I think we'll find in the book of 1 Peter that we can identify with much of what Peter is saying. We can learn much from his instruction to us. As the Apostle Peter writes this letter, things are heating up in the Roman Empire in the first century. In just a few years from then, a full-scale persecution will come. People are already beginning to suffer because of their faith in Christ. It is only going to get worse. And Peter's purpose in writing this letter is to remind God's people of what matters most to remind them of their salvation and their eternal hope that they have in Christ. To exhort them not to give in to the pressures of the world around them, but to remain steadfast, to remain faithful, and to be holy as the people of God. And Peter begins in chapter 1, spending the bulk of his time explaining the greatness and the wonder of our salvation and our eternal inheritance that we have in Christ. And he teaches us an important point, that when the furnace of affliction is turned up and we suffer for Christ's sake, and suffer we will, we must first and above all turn our eyes to Jesus and remember the salvation that he has secured, the promises that he has given, and the support that he provides as we live, as it were, as strangers in a foreign land. We do not fight our battles the same way the rest of the world fights their battles. We do not resist the pressures of the world as the world would resist, because we are not warring against merely earthly forces. Ours is a spiritual battle. And Peter is teaching us how to wage that spiritual warfare by living godly lives in this world. By God's grace, we have all of heaven's resources working together to enable us to live holy lives with steadfast hope, even in the midst of a world that demands that we conform. So, as we have seen so far to this point, the key to living with steadfast hope in this foreign land, is to turn our eyes first to Christ. To love Him, to long for Him, to remember the glory of God, to remember the joy of our salvation and the greatness of the eternal inheritance that waits us, waits for us in heaven. And with that in mind, we then live each day according to who we are in Christ. So, in light of all of this, 
The Apostle Peter calls God's people to be holy. To live as those who are already set apart unto God. Who have already been guaranteed all of heaven's inheritance for all who belong to Him. That's where we pick up this morning as we come into chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so I invite you to look at the text now and read along with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. God's word says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who are you? That's a significant question, isn't it? Who are you? How would you answer that question? I think we recognize that we can answer that question in many different ways, right? We could answer that question by giving our names. But that doesn't tell us much, does it? We could add information, talk about our age, our family, and where we live. That helps a little bit, doesn't it? We could go even further and talk about our jobs, our hobbies, our interests. And now we're getting somewhere, right? And if we keep going, if we keep trying to answer that question, explaining further and further who we are, I think we would find ourselves speaking in three basic categories. What we do, what we believe about ourselves and this world, and who we belong to. That is, 
the community that we identify with. These are some basic elements of defining who we really are. And they are all inseparably linked to one another. They cause each other. They build on each other. Who we belong to affects what we believe. If you come from the South, most of you will have a predisposition against the people north of the line. And if you come from the North, you may have a predisposition against those from the South of the line. Who we belong to affects what we believe. And what we believe affects who we belong to. What we believe often dictates the people we spend our time with. Both of those things drive our behavior, what we do. And what we do reveals what we believe and who we identify with. You see how all of that tangles together? For example, you can tell me that you are a golfer, right? But that doesn't tell me much. You can tell me that you are a golfer, but if you have never swung a club, and if you don't know the difference between a green and a fairway and a bunker, well then, you're not really a golfer, are you? However, if I see you on a golf course, and you're hitting 300-yard drives, and you're scoring pars and birdies, then I know you are somewhat of a golfer. What's more, if you're doing it while wearing a famous green jacket, I know a little something about what kind of a golfer you are. Because that's more than just what you do. That's your identity. You are now identified with a unique and highly skilled group of elite golfers. It's a silly illustration. But it helps to illustrate, helps to summarize the point of what Peter is telling us in this passage. If you are truly in Christ, then you have a new identity. You have, if you will, put on the jacket. You have a new faith and a new way of life. And it will show itself in the way that you live and behave. And it will be strangely distinct from the rest of the world around you. You're just not into the same life that they are. Not fundamentally. That is why you feel less and less at home in the world. I can't have meaningful conversations with elite golfers who have won the prized green jacket because I'm simply not there. I'm not in that world. I can swing a club, but I'm not like them. And they would find it hard to speak with me, wouldn't they? Now, they might be able to teach me a thing too. But as we embrace this identity, and as we live according to it, there is a sense in which we feel less and less at home in the world. And it explains why the world is increasingly unwelcome to us. Peter is addressing that tension in the first century Christians 
and in their lives. And he is bringing it into our lives for us today. He is acknowledging that the distinction and the tension is real. It exists, and that's not a bad thing. It is good. He is teaching us how that tension ought to affect our lives, how that identity ought to cultivate a certain way of living in us. But even as Peter gives practical instruction, and even as he gives commands, he keeps reaching back and reminding us of the identity that drives all of it. And so you see sort of this up and down with Peter so far in the first two chapters. You see him exalting in salvation and then saying, now be holy. And then he commands us specifically in holiness. And then he comes back to the exalting of salvation. And he does it over and over because he's keeping our behavior rooted in our identity. That's what he's after. Our identity, or our, excuse me, our godly behavior is always rooted in the grace of God that he has already shown to us. So, since we are in Christ by God's grace, how should we live? That's always the way the question must go. And Peter deals with that question in this text. In chapter 1, he lays the foundation that if we are in Christ, we have been born again into a living hope and an eternal inheritance by God's grace alone. That's a done deal. If you're in Christ, this is who you are. Now, he is going to teach us how that affects the way we live in an all-encompassing, all-consuming, total transformation. And so Peter, in this text, jumps right in in verses 1 through 3 and describes the believer's behavior. I know as a pastor, I'm told I'm never supposed to begin a message pointing at the behavior. But that's what Peter does in chapter 2. But remember, it's the second chapter of the book. He's already written the first chapter, and we've already studied that. And now he picks up in, in, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, and he begins with a negative then he gives a positive, and he finishes it up with a motivating reminder. And so in verse 1, Peter highlights the evil that God's people are to continually put away or put off. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There's five things he lists right off the bat. Five evils that we are to reject and remove from our lives. All malice, that is a general term referring to a general characterization of badness. Put away badness. Don't be evil. Okay? And then he kind of gives some more detail. Deceit. Well, we know what that is, right? Deceit has to do with trickery and dishonesty. Hypocrisy has to do with a practical manifestation of that deceit. Presenting ourselves as somebody we are not, an insincere person whose profession and whose behavior don't match up. Envy. Well, that's the same thing as jealousy. We know what that is. That is a resentment at the prosperity or achievements of somebody else. Slander is closely related to that, and it has to do with cutting somebody down in their character. 
seeking to destroy someone's reputation, often in the form of gossip behind their backs. We know what that's like, right? We've been the victims of it. We've also been the perpetrators. Peter is saying, you are in Christ. That is no longer who you are. These things are characteristic of the world and their relationships, but they have no place in the heart of a Christian. Not even a little bit. Not even the little deceptions. Not even the minor hypocrisies. Not even the little bit of resentment or snarky comment because we really are bothered by something. Peter says this has no place. He repeats that word all several times. Put it all away. Put it all away. Put it all away. Don't tolerate it, not even in the little bit. It's a command to put these things away completely. A total break with evil. Not allowing even one little root of compromise, but rejecting it altogether. And Peter is emphatic on this. Stop coddling your pet sins, Peter says. Stop ignoring the severity of your sins. Stop explaining or justifying the little sins in your lives. Stop confessing with your mouth Christ, on, but, but following the world with your behavior. Stop singing God's praises on Sunday morning and cutting your brothers and sisters down on Sunday afternoon. Stop resenting others for the success that you think you deserve. But rather, build one another up. Live according to your confession of faith. Strive to put to death all the influences of sin in your life and live a genuine godly life, not just before men, but before your heavenly Father. And Peter goes on then, having established that negative command to give us a positive in verse 2, to explain to us not just to put evil away, but what good we ought to pursue. He calls us to long for the word of God. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, we've all seen what happens when a small baby gets hungry, right? Have you? Some of us have. Some of you are in the thick of it in this stage of life. When a small baby gets hungry, we have a picture of what Peter is talking about when he says long for. It is an intense longing. It is a longing that is brought on by a great need, and the one who is doing the longing will not rest or be satisfied until that need is met. Right? It's intense, isn't it, parents? That is a picture of how we ought to be with the Word of God. It's not a delicacy. It's not a snack. It's not an indulgence. It is our necessary food. When he talks about the pure spiritual milk here, it is a reference to Scripture, and it's a call for us 
to long for it. It is a craving. Dare I use the word addiction? Maybe that's a little bit off, but the idea there is that we crave it because we so desire it, and without it we believe and we know we will die. I cannot live without it. Our desire for the Word of God ought to be so strong that everything else in life fades away in comparison. Nothing else will do. You say it's a beautiful day for us to go out on the lake. Let's go Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. I say, no way. No way. Why would I scoop up a handful of lake water and a handful of grass for my meal when I can sit at the feet of God and hear His word preached? Right? Why would I do that? I have to! I have to be in the Word. Without it, I die. Why? Because Peter goes on. The result of that Word of God and the craving that we have for it, by this Word of God, we will grow up into salvation. What does that mean? Now, Peter's not using the imagery of milk here like the book of Hebrews does. Comparing milk with meat and saying, well, you should be on the milk by now. You, 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 should, be, you should be eating the meat of the word. That's not what Peter is after here. He's not talking about being shallow. He's not talking about being baby Christians. People, Peter's point here is that the word of God is the only true spiritual nourishment and that it is good for us. And that by the word of God, we grow into spiritual maturity. And we won't grow into spiritual maturity by anything else. And so this ought to be the most pressing priority, the deepest longing of every Christian heart. And I think the way Peter says it is important here. Did you notice he doesn't command us to read the word? He could have. He doesn't. He doesn't command us even to study the Word or even to meditate on it or memorize it. All those things are important. All of them are commanded in Scripture. All of them are a natural aspect of craving the Word, but that's just it. At the heart of those exercises is the craving. You see, you can read the Word of God and not grow. You can memorize the Word of God and not grow. You can sit under the preaching of the Word of God every single week and not grow. Why? Because it goes in one ear and out the other. Well, why does it go in one ear out the other? Because your heart is not in it. You're not longing for the Word. You see? Peter's going deeper than just our behavior here. He's calling us to long for that Word. Beloved, this is where my fear for you is. I wonder if what I've just described could describe some of you. I've challenged you in the past to give priority to the reading and the preaching of God's Word in your lives, and I will stand by that, and I will reaffirm it over and over again because it is good for you. It is good for us. But let me ask you a more fundamental question. Do you long for the Word? Do you hunger for it? 
When you read the Word of God or when you sit here and listen to it preached, are you doing it only because it's what you know you're supposed to do and it's the routine you're used to? If so, is it any wonder that you're not growing spiritually? You're not truly seeking Christ. You are still attached to something else. But as you turn your heart, as you cultivate this hunger and turn your gaze away from the empty trivialities of this world, and as you set your mind on Christ and you begin to seek those things that are above, as Paul says in Colossians 3, then there is a new love that begins to grow in you. A love for God and His Word. A longing to be near Him. And so a longing to pursue Him by devoting yourselves to the Word. Not just learning it, but living it. And as you begin to devote your, yourself to the Word of God, making time in your daily schedule to read it, committing yourself to gathering with the saints every week to hear it preached. Because you long for this because it is in this word that you find Christ. You learn who he is. You learn what he has done for you. You've seen his character displayed and the instruction that he has given on how to live. You long to be close to him. You long to live for him. You long to please him. And you long to see the fulfillment of the promises and the hope that He has revealed to you in this Word. And when this is the earnest and sincere and most intense longing of your heart, nothing short of this Word will satisfy your soul. Nothing will keep you from reading it. Nothing will keep you from studying it, from hearing it preached, and even talking about it with others. Why? Because this is what you love. We understand this principle in the fall when football season comes around, don't we? We will prioritize every moment of our week to prepare for the game. And we'll go and we'll spend our money. We'll spend our energy. We will get to the end of the day and we're wiped out, exhausted. Because we haven't just enjoyed the game. We've talked about it ad nauseum. We've listened to the radio reports that review the game and tell us what we already saw. You see that? You have the event, you have the commentary, you have the proclamation, you have everything that makes for a healthy Christian when it is involving the Word of God. We understand this, right? You see, the reason many of us are not seeing the spiritual growth and stability that we know we need in our lives could very well simply be that we are not word-centered, Christ-focused people. You see, we will spend all of our effort trying to adjust. Well, if I just had this, or if I just could do that, or if my schedule just changed like this, or, or if this just happened, or if he would just do that, or if she would just do that, or if, 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 then I would grow spiritually. If we just had this, if my church would just do this, or if we would just whatever. When the bottom line is at the root of the problem, you're not making use of the means of grace God has given you all. We need to examine our hearts and consider what is the longing of my heart? And as this grows, 
our other cravings will begin to lose their strength. And we will become, we will continue, we will taste and see that the Lord is good. And He is not only good, but He is all good. And He is all satisfying. Nothing else compares to Him. Nothing else is worth this level of time and effort than to pursue Him. And that is the motivating reminder that Peter gives us in verse 3, calling us to remember God's goodness. Beloved, have you not tasted already and seen this goodness of the Lord? Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That if is not really conditional. We might better translate it since. If you are in Christ, you have indeed tasted that He is good. Do you remember the goodness and the joy of the Lord that you experienced when you first came to Christ? Do you remember? That was just scratching the surface. You had no idea at that moment what you were getting into. It was just a taste. It was just the beginning. It was just a taste from a fountain of joy and goodness that flows from heaven forever. And it only increases because God is infinitely good. God is infinitely glorious. So have you tasted of the goodness of the Lord? If you have, how could you ever go back to something else? How could you ever go back to the ways of the world? How could you ever spend your life on something less? Peter calls you, you who have tasted of the goodness of God's grace, to put away the behavior of the old you, to put away the ways of the world. He calls us to put on the new life that we have in Christ, to cultivate that longing for Him and His Word. Believers are distinguished in this world by their behavior by renouncing the sinful characteristics of the world and longing for the pure word of God, the glorious word of God, because our lives are dedicated to seeking Him, to knowing Him, to following His design and His commands for living. But again, the Christian's life is not just about behavior, is it? As I've said all along, and as Peter has emphasized, the believer's behavior is rooted in the believer's faith, the reality that drives the action. The believer behaves the way he does because he believes what he believes. We read about the believer's faith in verses 4 through 8. It says in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. I know that's not a complete sentence, but we'll stop right there. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a description of what kind of ministry he had when he was on the earth and what kind of ministry he has now. This is Jesus Christ, the one who is the living Son of God, the one who came to earth with a clear and definite mission to live a perfect life on our behalf and to die a sinner's death in our place, so that the just 
wrath of God could be poured out on him instead of us. This is the Jesus who would rise from the dead in victory over sin so that his righteousness could be applied to us, giving us peace with God and eternal life in him alone. This Jesus, we read, was rejected by men in that he was crucified. But in the sight of God, the Father, he is chosen and precious as his own beloved son in whom he is well pleased. He is the one who has completed his mission so that all who believe in him will surely be saved. This Jesus, this Jesus is the object of our faith. Not the Jesus you read about on bumper stickers around town. That's a weak Jesus. That's a Jesus of man's own invention. That's not our Jesus. This is our Jesus. He is the object of our faith. And he is a solid and secure object of our faith. Our faith is not in some nebulous, mystical notion of the goodness of mankind, whatever we think that is. Our faith is not in some empty religious ritual. Our faith is not in positive thinking. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is not certainly in our own efforts or achievements in this world. All of that is empty and it is fading away and it is not a sure foundation to stand on. It will not save you. None of it brings any hope for eternity. No, we count all of that as loss, as garbage. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ who has accomplished salvation for us, who has promised a glorious heavenly inheritance when he comes again, who will receive us to himself, who even now is at the right hand of God the Father, praying for us and representing us in all his righteousness. It is this Jesus who has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to lead us into the truth and to guide us in godly living. This Jesus is the glorious and unshakable cornerstone of our faith. And in him we read in verse 5 that we ourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That means we are united to him. We are united to Christ in his church. That's the built up as a spiritual house part. We have access to God the Father himself through Jesus Christ, the risen Son. That's the idea behind being a holy priesthood. And we are able to live godly lives, pleasing to God right here, right now, as we look forward to the day when we will live before him in sinless perfection. That's the idea of offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. This Jesus who has given us all of that, we read in verse 6, is the Savior who is promised throughout all the Old Testament. And all those quotes are coming from the Old Testament, showing that the Old Testament was meant to point us to Him. You want more of that? Come to the equip class. We're talking about that. For it stands in Scripture, we read, and this is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Because this Jesus is the Savior sent by God 
sent by God the Father himself. And because he was gloriously successful in his mission and has accomplished salvation for his people, no one who comes to this Jesus will be left out. No one who comes to the Father through this Jesus will be left out in the cold. All will be saved. And though we suffer in this world as Jesus did, and though we are rejected by this world as Jesus was, we will be vindicated and glorified as Jesus is because every aspect of our life now and our hope for the future is anchored securely in this Jesus. Now tell me, Christian, why are you still so attached to the world? Why are you still so at home here? Why are you still so attracted by the world's interests and values? Why are you still so anxious with the world's fears? We have a Savior who has conquered all. We have a home in heaven that is prepared for us. Our Savior is coming again. And all sin and all sinners will be righteously judged and every one of God's precious children will be gathered in from every tribe and tongue and nation and language and people group. And we will all together worship before the throne of the great I Am. And we've been given the privilege of getting just a taste of it right here, right now, together. And this, we read in verse 7, is the honor for you who believe. But the lost don't understand that. Those who have rejected Christ, we read, do not believe. And so Peter explains to the lost, that this same Jesus has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To those who do not believe in Jesus, but rather disobey the word, and that little comment there, as they are were destined to do, means that even the disobedience of sinful people is under the sovereign hand of God. That that doesn't escape his notice, and that's not outside his control. But to them who disobey the word, to them who do not believe, this Jesus is not a savior. This Jesus is a judge. He is the rock of offense. He is the rock who will be their undoing and will crush them in their sin. Oh, beloved, I pray that that is not you. Why would you waste your life on the empty and dying pursuits of this world and its values and then be crushed under the weight of God's judgment? When you, run to, when, when you can run to Jesus Christ as your Savior and find in His presence the glory of eternal life and see Him as your Savior and know the joy of knowing Him and the pleasures that will last forevermore. Beloved, examine your hearts today. Where is your faith? Consider your soul humbly and prayerfully. What do you know and what do you believe about Jesus this morning? And where do you stand 
to Him. Are you so convinced of the truth and the certainty of what you have heard about Jesus just now, that you are driven to love Him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to devote yourself fully to living for Him? Have you come all the way to Jesus? What are you holding back? What is distracting you this morning? How is your faith directing your behavior? And I'll flip it around. What is your behavior revealing about your faith? If we truly believe verses 4 through 8, and if we truly grasp what these verses are saying, then verses 1 through 3 become a delight for us. Because we belong to Him, body and soul. Verses 1 through 3 are not burdensome to me. They are our joy. And that brings us finally to verses 9 through 10 where we see the believer's identity. We're building here. Our behavior is based on our faith. Our faith, what we believe, is based on our identity. This is the fountainhead of everything, and it has to do with where we belong and to whom we belong. If we understand who we belong to, we will know what to do with our time we will know how to live our lives. In chapter 1, Peter taught the reality and the security of our salvation. Just now in verses 4 through 8, he taught the source of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Here in verses 9 and 10, he teaches the implications of our salvation. That is, what it means for us that we are saved in Christ and what privileges we receive in that salvation. And here we see that our salvation is more than just what we do. It is more than just what has been done to us. It is more than just what we believe. It is deeper than all of that. It has to do with who we are at the very core. Our very identity. To what and to whom we belong. And so, first of all, we see, regarding the believer's identity, we see this, we belong to God through Christ Jesus. And so verse 9 lays out about the believer's identity. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession with a particular purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is amazing. And it is so contrary to the way the world today thinks, isn't it? We like to think in terms of we're either slaves or we're free. The Bible doesn't think in those terms. The Bible doesn't present it that way. We, we are slaves no matter what in the Bible. But we're either slaves to evil and ungodliness, or we are slaves to 
to God. Freedom in Scripture is defined as being a slave to God. That's freedom. That's so contrary to the way the world thinks today, isn't it? Right? Peter isn't allowing us to self-identify. Right? Peter's not looking at these Christians and saying, you are men and women, or whatever in between you decide you want to be. He's not saying you are Jews or you are Gentiles. He's not saying you are Asians. He's writing to Christians in Asia. He's not saying that. He's not saying you're Roman citizens. He's not telling them you are beautiful just the way you are. He doesn't say you are victims. He doesn't say you are survivors. He doesn't say you be you. He doesn't say live your truth, however you want to define it. There is no self-definition here. There is no autonomy in any of this. There is no exalting oneself in any of this. Peter says, you are chosen. You are a chosen race. You are a whole new group of people who are, whose identifying feature is that you have been chosen by God. He established that all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, right? When he calls them elect exiles. You are the undeserving recipients of God's saving grace through the glorious Jesus Christ, whose character and work have dominated the book of 1 Peter so far. You were lost, but through Christ you have been reconciled to God. That's who you are. And what's more, Peter builds on that. He says you are a royal priesthood. You've been given access to God through Jesus, who is our great high priest. And not just any kind of priests are we. We are royal priests, as it were, heirs of the kingdom of God. But we will reign with King Jesus forever and ever. And then Peter builds on that and says, You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Remember what holiness means? It means you've been set apart from the world. It means that you've been set apart unto the Lord. That you belong to Him. You are His special prized possession. You are set apart to worship Him, to serve Him, to live for Him, to represent Him on this earth. That is a serious calling. It's a spectacular privilege, isn't it? And with that, we also see that all of these things are true for one particular mission, that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are here to make known to all the world that God is an infinitely wonderful Father and Jesus is an infinitely great Savior. Now tell me, how do we do that in this world when we are more excited about the things the world does and we are so dead about the things that we say we believe. What excellencies are you talking about? Have you tasted and seen that God is good? Then proclaim what you have seen and live it. In all of this, Peter is driving home a powerful truth about our identity. We belong to God. He says in verse 10, Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once we were lost and hopeless, without purpose, without meaning in this life. We were condemned by God. We were headed for eternal judgment. But now, by God's grace and mercy, we have been saved. What does that mean? We've been lifted up out of the pit and thrown off on our own to go now live as we want to. No, we have been rescued from sin and now we belong to God as we were created to. What a marvelous and matchless grace that is. What a marvelous and matchless Savior He is. And this is our only identity. My prayer is that we would let go of all of those other things. That we would not revel in or seek our identity in the things of this world. I get it. We have personalities. We have backgrounds. We have hobbies. We have likes and dislikes and we have experiences. And all of those have worked together to form us into the kind of person that we are today. But none of those things are the things that identify us first and foremost. In this church, we are not northerners and southerners. We are not identified by our favorite sports team or our hobbies. We are not white, black, or somewhere in the middle. We are not identified by where we came from. We are not identified by what we've experienced. What makes us one is the common faith that we have in Christ. We are all sinners saved by God's grace alone. And that is our only boast. That is our only message. Christ and Him crucified. Now I want us to notice one other aspect of our identity very quickly. The substance of our identity is this, that we belong to God in Christ Jesus. But that has an important implication also that I think we need to notice. The implication is this. We belong to one another in Christ Jesus. Notice all the collective terms that Peter uses in verses 9 and 10. Race. Nation. People. You understand that the word people is not just the plural of person, that it's a collective term. A people, a people group. You see that? The implication is that all who belong to God in Christ Jesus are unified together in this identity. And as such, in Christ Jesus, we belong to one another. We are unified together. In this identity. We are one. You realize that? When you suffer. It affects me. When I suffer. It affects you. When one of our brothers or sisters in Christ is sick. We all feel it. When one goes missing. It hurts. When one falls, we grieve. When one succeeds, when growth happens, when one is restored, we rejoice. We belong to one another. 
And you might ask me on any given day who my family is, and I'll name the people with the same last name as me, or the people whose family I married into when I made my wedding vows. But I could just as easily answer that question with the name Cornerstone Baptist Church. You are my family. We are a family together. We belong to one another. Why? Because we are in Christ. My point is simply this, and the rest of the New Testament bears this out. To be identified with Christ is also to be identified with His people. Our identity involves a community. And our relationship with God will show itself in our relationship to His people. So, you want to evaluate your identity. You want to evaluate what you truly believe and where your behavior is. And if it's really reflecting, consider this. What is your relationship like with one another? And what is it that seeks that, that you seek to unify us? What is it that brings us together? So to bring all this to a conclusion, in chapter 1, Peter taught the reality and security of our salvation. In verses 4 through 8, he teaches the source of our salvation. In verses 9 and 10, he teaches the implications of our salvation and then we saw in verses 1 through 3, the application of our salvation. Who we are in Christ and what we believe about Him will have a direct effect on how we live. We will put away worldly behaviors. We will cultivate a love and a longing for the Word of God that we might grow spiritually into Christ-like character and that we might represent Him accurately and clearly and distinctly in the world. And Peter comes back to that point in verses 11 and 12, which we're not going to go in depth in today. We're going to come back to that next time. But in verses 11 and 12, he writes this, on the basis of all of that, he says, beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, foreigners in a strange world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we have a vivid illustration of this happening right now. If you've been watching the news, you know that we as a church have prayed for one particular church in Alberta, Canada, whose pastor was put in jail simply because he decided we're going to have church, even though the government, for no constitutional reason, has forbidden Right? You remember that? Have you kept up with the stories? He's out of jail. Praise God, he's been released. He went right back into his pulpit. You know what the authorities did? This morning, there's a chain-link fence around the church building. They can't get in. Now, I'm guessing they're having church outside somewhere or somewhere else. How does that tie in here? The world is attempting to speak against a group of God's people with evil intentions. They are working to keep their conduct honorable. They're not trying to be hostile, belligerent against the, the government. They're, trying, they're not trying to needlessly offend or break the law. They are being faithful to their God. They are worshiping their God. They are striving to keep their conduct 
honorable among those who don't believe. It hasn't stopped the accusations. But what it has done is it has pointed many, many people to the seriousness and the glory and the joy and the centrality of our relationship with God. So that a mere stupid little chain-link fence around our church building isn't going to derail us from what is most important. See that? Why do we live with that emphasis in our lives? Why do we live this way? Why is this a priority? Why is this our commitment? Because we believe in a risen Savior who has given us eternal life. And we have been adopted as the precious children of God. We have been born again to a new creation. We don't belong to this world. We belong to Him. We have a new identity. We have a new hope. We have a new joy. And we proclaim it. And we live it because we answer to Him. And because we want the rest of the world to know the joy that we have seen. Christian. For Christ's sake, mortify sin in your life. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Word of God to help you with that. Cultivate a deep craving for Scripture so that by it you may grow spiritually into godliness, into maturity, into steadfast hope. And you never outgrow that. Be who you are in Christ. Live according to your new identity in Him. But I have to ask this question. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? And how do you know? Do you know this Jesus? Have you put your faith and hope in Him alone as your Savior and Master? Have you, as it were, put the world behind you and the cross before you? No turning back? No turning back? Or are you holding on to something else? Are you trying to follow Christ partially? If you're straddling the fence about Jesus, if you are wavering between two beliefs, or if you are holding on to some otherworldly attachment, if something has taken its root and distracted you from wholehearted devotion to Him, Jesus will be to you a stumbling stone, not a cornerstone. And you will fall in the judgment. My prayer for you is that you will come all the way to Christ. My prayer for you is that you will find in Him your rock of salvation. And His glory will so fill your eyes, fill your mind, that while you might enjoy things that this world has to offer, and you will be joyful in this world because of what God has graciously provided for us to enjoy, your heart won't be attached to you because it's all going to pass away. But one day you, you're in Christ, you will see his face. Father, keep me walking worthy. 
till I look upon you. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. Thank you for your word.